You're listening to a message from Heritage Christian Fellowship in San Clemente, California. For more information, go to heritagesc.org. John chapter 17. We here at this church, uh, we're followers of Jesus. And uh, we want to follow Jesus with our lives. We, we believe that in him is life. And uh, that's why we open our, our Bibles every week. And we try to, try to get a little bit more knowledge about who Jesus is, what he's like, and what that means for, for our lives. And we kind of take that with us as we go, right? Um, but in, in spite of that, and in spite of like all that we have in our Bibles Jesus sometimes can be a bit of a mystery. I mean, even if you look at all the Gospels, I mean, like 40% of what's recorded about Jesus' life is just the final week. We have nothing prior to uh, what, what he did growing up, minus one small little story. Uh, we have a few things about his birth. I mean, there are some limitations to uh, what we have about Jesus, and yet uh, we want to give our lives to him. And so... I often wonder, like, what is Jesus like? Like, what did he say? What did he do? How did he pray? And this is the beauty of chapters like John 17. Because we get a glimpse into Jesus actually praying. uh, And there's three parts to the prayer that that we're going to kind of uh, go over. Um, But it's beautiful because you really get to see Jesus' heart. Um, not just for for the Father, but for his disciples, and then even for future believers. Uh, and so he prays in this prayer for you and me. And so we're going to study that today, John chapter 17. And in it, uh, one of the things that I realized this week is that I think there is so much to John chapter 17 of who we want to be as a church. Um, th- this is our, our vision statement. Um, it's something that, that we came up with uh, through prayer and wrestling uh, just this past year. And it's to experience the presence of God and the power of family. And I just see so much of this in Jesus' heart. And so I'm really excited to, to study it with you guys today. Um, John 17, it, there, I mean, there could probably be 50, there's probably a hundred sermons in this little chapter of 20 plus verses. Um, There's so much theology. It is very, very rich. I don't have time to touch on everything, but uh, there are a couple things that I want to do. I want to just cover what Jesus says about eternal life and then what is his desire, what, how he expresses his heart that his followers, you and me, would do three things, that we would see God's glory, that we would uh, become holy, and that we would reach complete unity. So that's what we're going to talk about. You guys ready? I hope so. Um, sometime this week, take this prayer out, digest it. It's something that, that I think you can pray yourself, um, and it is just something that's so beautiful and so powerful, and one of those passages of the Bible that I think never gets old. All right, let me pray. God, um, we ask that you would move. May, us, uh, may we see your heart just a little bit more. Um, would you speak through me? Would you be glorified? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, verse one. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, 
Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. And he says this, for you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. So stop. Don't read any further. I want everybody to close their eyes. If you're at home right now, close your eyes. And I want you to think about eternal life. What do you think of when you hear the term eternal life? What do you think about? If someone said here, describe to me eternal life, what would you say? What are you thinking about? You don't have to answer. How do you get it? How do you receive it? What is it? Okay, you got it? Got what your, what your, what your guess is? Let's see what Jesus says. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. All right, what does he say? That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. First off, I don't know if you realize this is Jesus praying. And the first time I read it, I was like, why does Jesus speak in the third person? It's kind of like a weird thing to say. Uh, Jesus, as I pray to God, I hope that they know Jesus. Certain scholars think that maybe like one person said, maybe this is what they did during the first century. Another person said, maybe John is adapting the prayer so that it's something that we learn to pray. But I just think it's obvious. If you're reading it, uh, it's going to stick out to you. But the main question is, is that what you thought? Is that what you said? Was it? To know that they know you and the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So let's just try and unpack this a little bit. What does it mean that they would know the true God? I think a lot of us have different ideas of what eternal life is, whether it's some place that we go to in the end, what Jesus is saying that it is related to actually knowing God. But what does that mean? Well, traditionally in, in English, when we talk about knowing we would often use it and describe it as like head knowledge, right? Facts and truths. Um, this is the, the traditional way that we would, we would use the word. No, it's kind of like a, a baseball card. Uh, this is a baseball card of my favorite player of all time, Nolan Ryan. I named a son after him. Um, and on this card, if you turn on the back, there's like the stats part. And you'll see all kinds of stuff. You'll see height, weight, um, and it's just all facts, where he was born, um, the, the teams that he played for, that he had well over 5,000 strikeouts. I mean, this, there's a lot of stuff on here that are, that are informational facts and truths about Nolan Ryan. That I know these facts, does that mean that I know Nolan Ryan? No, right? Same thing for, for us in our relationship with God. You can know that Jesus died for your sins. You can know that, that Jesus or that, that God brought the Israelites out of Egypt. You can know about the different plagues. You can know lots of interesting facts about the Bible. Does that mean that you know God? No, right? I mean, I, I, I think you, you do need to know these things. I know Nolan Ryan better than I know that he was a baseball player and he was a really good one. But that doesn't encompass the, the, the full experience of knowing someone. You see, the word know here is about experiential knowledge. It is not just head knowledge or truth knowledge. It is equivalent to, um, to, to 
knowing about marriage and reading about marriage and having someone tell you about marriage and being married, right? The difference between, you know, thinking of what it's going to be like and actually experiencing the joys and the trials and the stresses and not being able to go home at the end of the night, right? I mean, marriage is something totally different. I I would say the two biggest things that were like, I thought I knew, but I had no idea until I knew was marriage. And then the other one was, was having kids, right? These two little boys. I mean, I had, I had no idea. People say, oh, you're going to love your kids so much. I had no idea how much my heart was going to explode. I mean, it was huge, right? I, I had no idea what it was going to be like to change diapers, I had no idea what it was going to be like to take care of a sick kid until one day, both of them, when they were three and one at this age and, and they were sick and, and my oldest said, oh, my stomach hurts. I need to go to the bathroom. And I remember picking him up only to have something drizzled down that was brown off of his leg and onto my foot and all over the floor. And as I was like hyperventilating, like taking him to the bathroom and then showering him and cleaning that all up and going, oh my gosh, I never thought I could have done that. To then later that evening, having the other one lay on my chest as he goes, and then just pukes all over himself, all over my neck, all over my chest. I mean, many of you parents probably had experiences similar to that. All with parenthood, right? But that I told you about it, do you know? You won't know until you know, right? It's about experience. It's about really trying to see it. And that's what it means here. It's an intimate understanding. And in fact, it even goes further than that. Uh, The word know here is the same word that Mary uses when she's told she's going to have a baby. What does she say? How will this be, Mary asked. The angel said, since I am a virgin... But the word that is used there is the word know. And the King James Version encompasses it even better. What does it say? How can this be since I do not what? Know a man. What is it saying? To know in this regard is to know like the intimacy that comes with marriage. Do you picking up what I'm putting down? Right? This is the type of knowing. It is incredibly, incredibly dynamic. It is the difference between knowing that a tomato is a fruit and knowing that it does not belong in a fruit salad. Right? I thought it was funny. Why this whole thing, why experience, why, why that intimate knowledge is so important. Um, and, and one thing I forgot to say is that, uh, one thing about this chapter, I think, just says so much about, I, I think I said this, of, of who our church is to be, right? Or who our church wants to be. It, we want every single one of you to experience the presence of God. Why is it an experience? I don't want you just to know about it. I want you to actually experience it, right? The difference between knowing love and experiencing love. The difference between knowing the definition of grace and then actually experiencing grace. The difference between knowing that, yeah, God forgives me, but to actually feel forgiven, to feel the weight being lifted off the, the burden. I mean, that is, that's night and day, right? That is very different. And that is what 
Jesus is trying to get at when he says that eternal life is to know God and to know Jesus. Uh, last week, I talked about obeying Jesus, and, and we kind of went through why we obey, uh, what we do to obey, what happens, how is it all possible, and, it, and we kind of looked at John chapters 13 through 16. Obedience, obeying, and having these interactions with God are opportunities to have experiences, opportunities to have experiences. And when we have those experiences, something, our, our knowledge goes from just a head knowledge into a heart knowledge into an experience knowledge. Does that make sense? That is what eternal life is, is to know God in that intimate, deep way. And when we have that experience knowledge, I think the three things that Jesus prays for kind of comes alive. Okay? They are to see God's glory, to become holy, and to reach complete unity. First, see God's glory. Right? Uh, look at verse 4 and 5. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you, you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Glorify. What does the word glorify mean? Does anybody have a diamond ring? Preferably a big one, a big pretty one. Can I see it? Would you be willing to take it off? Anyone? Volunteers, please. Okay, here we go. Oh, okay. No, it's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. All right, thank you very much. Next point. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, diamond ring. Why, why are diamond rings so valuable? Why is this diamond so valuable? Right, it's 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 a it's a it's a gem. It's a, it's a rock. It's found in the earth. You know what what makes it so valuable? Well, what makes it so valuable is that it has a cut. It has a size. It has a clarity. It has a purity. And somebody assigned a value to it and said, because of what it is, because of what it is, it now has this value. Does that make sense? A diamond has been glorified when it has been given a value. That's what, that's what being glorified is. It, is. it is giving something its proper value. Okay? For diamonds, it's cut, size, clarity, period. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. It's a beautiful ring. Okay? How much more is Jesus' glory? God wants each one of us to see his glory. Jesus wants us to see his glory, the glory that he had uh, before the creation of the world. What is the value of Jesus? How would you measure God's power, God's love, God's purity, God's holiness? How would you assess that type of value? Right? That is true glory. That is huge. And what's crazy about that is that God wants to generously assign each one of us that same value. The value of Jesus. I have given them the glory that you gave me. Jesus wants to give us. He wants us to see God's glory for all that he's worth, all of his value. And he wants to pour that on us. Right? That, that's, that to me is amazing. How many of you guys have ever struggled with your identity? Right? Right? I mean, all of us, 
All of us struggle with our identity to some regard. And it happens when we're a kid. I mean, we're just brought up and we, we struggle with who we are and what we do and what we've done and what people say and the titles that people put on us. Okay? If you have ever struggled with glory, what you need to, struggled with your identity, what you need to hear is that God wants to tell you that you are valuable to him as valuable as his son. Right? He pours his glory on us. I have given them the glory that you gave me. Oh, how you are loved. Right? How valuable are you to God if you share in that glory? God has assigned Jesus's value to you. That is huge. And it takes a lifetime to understand, maybe many lifetimes. I don't fully understand it. But to experience it, man, it just becomes alive. I can't, I can't fully articulate it in words, but when you sense, when you feel God shower you with his love and with his glory, with his value, man, it can really lift you up. It can really make a difference. It is an experience, an experience. And when we experience the presence of God, what happens? What do we do as a church? What, does we do, what do we do as a church? We, we, we have services on Sunday. We have small groups during the week. We have these gatherings. We have experiences. We, we, we have moments where we gather to have experiences with the presence of God. Why does it matter that you come? Why does it matter that you braved the cold and showed up? Right, I, I, want, I will continue to harp on this. Hopefully you've heard me say something along these lines before, but I think for all of us, if you're online, I mean, if you want good music, you want, you want to listen to worship music, you can download Gary's album, right? If you want to listen to a great message, a great exegetical message, there's thousands upon thousands of sermons you can listen to. But what can't you experience by just downloading at home the glory of each one of you you see because each one of you is valued because each one of you has been showered with Jesus glory you have something to offer when you come here you radiate God's glory to the rest of us that's why we want you to be here that's why this family matters right that's a big difference than just knowing it's experiencing and it's sharing in that glory. What does Jesus want us to do? He wants us to see God's glory. He wants us to experience God's glory. And he wants us to become holy. Look at verse 16. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Right? Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. What does that mean to sanctify? What does it mean? Do you have any ideas? It means, the word sanctify literally means holy. It means special. It means set apart. Right? What? what God's, the, the, the truth, who, what, what is the truth? What is the word of God? The word became flesh, right? Jesus is the one that sanctifies us. Jesus' commands help sanctify us. What, how does it sanctify us? Well, it sets us apart. It, it makes us look differently. What are we set apart? 
Well, I think what it says is we are set apart from something and we are set apart for something. From something and for something. What are we set apart from? The world, right? The ways of the world, right? When, when you look at the second portion of this prayer in John 17, the word world comes up over and over again. And Jesus asked the father to protect the disciples from the world. He talks about how the world will hate them. Um, and, and he says, I don't want you to remove them from the world. You know, we're not, it, it doesn't mean that we are these spiritual beings who are meant to be somewhere else. What it's talking about is God's way versus the way of the world, right? And what is the way of the world? It's full of greed and selfishness and gluttony and slothness. I mean, it's just, it's selfishness. It, it is, it is anti-God, right? But Christians, Christians should be set apart which means the way that we look at money, the way that we operate in our jobs, the way that we treat our neighbors should look different. It should be set apart, right? To sanctify what it, what, when, when God gives the Israelites the law and he gives us 613 different commands, all these dietary restrictions, things to do on certain days. Why does he do that? He does that to set them apart, to distinguish them from something else so that they look different, right? That's what God wants us to do. Now, should we do this in a holy roller, uh, a righteous way? I don't, I don't treat people the way you treat people. I'm better than you. I'm righteous. Is that how we're supposed to do it? No, obviously, right? We're supposed to do it in a humble foot washing way. That's how we are supposed to treat other people, Okay? But God does want to remove us. He wants to sanctify us. He wants us to make us holy. And he wants us to get rid of sin. He doesn't want us to be the greedy gluttons who care more about likes and followers than about loving our neighbors. Right? God does want to remove some of that stuff. Why? Why does God want to remove sin? I think there's a couple reasons. But, but I think one is so that we see his glory. We see his glory. Why? Why do we need to be removed from sin? It's because God's holy. God's righteous. God's perfect. God is all powerful. And sin can't get in its midst without death happening. I mean, when, when, when God calls the Israelites and he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. He promises to, to be with them. And his glory really just, it rests in the temple, in, in the tabernacle. As it says in Exodus 40, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, filled it, right? He, he, heaven and earth met right there. And, and the high priest would only go into that room, that, that holy of holies, one time a year. And, and to go into that room, he had to sanctify himself. He had to consecrate himself. So he would go off and he would live by himself outside of the village for often a week at a time beforehand so that he would never, he wouldn't, he wouldn't cross paths with anything that was unclean. Then he would come to the temple. He would bathe himself. He would burn incense. He would put on a white humble cloth. Then he would go in with a bull. He would sacrifice a bull, sprinkle the blood of the bull on the altar to atone for his sins and his family's sins. 
Then after getting all bloody, he would go back outside, bathe again, put on a new white cloth, and then go back in with two goats. And he would cast lots, he would sacrifice one, and he'd let the other one go. Why did he go through all of that? And tie a a piece of rope around him and and walk around with bells just in case he, he didn't do something right. Because God is holy. God is holy and God is righteous. Now, let me clarify something. We are cleansed and forgiven by the blood of Jesus. Amen? That means there is nothing you can do to earn your salvation or anything. That is not what I'm talking about here. But to the level at which we experience God's glory, I think is related to our own personal sin, right? There, there is a sliding scale, if you will. It doesn't change the fact of who God is and, and what he's done for us. You are forgiven, you are loved. But the more we remove our sin, the more we set ourselves apart, the more we will be able to experience who God is and what God is like. What is it like? It is, it is, this is an analogy that I heard from a, 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 an English scholar. Okay? It is like trying to play the piano with oven mitts. Can you do this? In the first service, Todd said, you could play chopsticks. Which I agree. I agree. You can, because of what Jesus did, you can bang out a little bit of a tune. But the more we pull off the gloves, our abilities, our, our, our perceptiveness, what music we can make becomes something greater. Amen? Jesus wants us to be set apart. He wants us to constantly be trying to pull off the oven mitts of the ways of the world. And as we examine ourselves, as we do, I think we will, we will look different for the world, but we will also see more of God's glory. So we see God's glory, we become holy. And what I think holiness leads to is it leads to more glory, but it leads to more connection. See, this is Jesus' heart for our church, is that we would reach complete unity. Look at verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. This is Jesus' prayer for future believers, for us right here in this room, this patio. Be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Right? Hallelujah. I've given them glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me. Really? Think about that. Jesus' prayer to the Father is that we would have the type of oneness that happens within the Trinity. We don't believe in a polytheistic God. We believe in one God. They are so one that they are literally one. That is what Jesus prays for us. 
And what, what I think is fascinating is that, look at what he says. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one. Right? What, what is he saying here? I was thinking about this just like just today. The more, I mean, this is so, such a rich passage. Every single one of you have been showered with God's glory. What does that mean? That means you have value. You've been assessed an immense amount of value. Which means we can't be one without you. Which means you bring something to the table by being here. You have, you have something to offer. You have some strength. Your, your radiant glory helps us become one. I and them and you and me. How are we doing about this? Hopefully Jesus doesn't check in on his church from time to time because I think he's going to find a very divided church. Right? I mean, I, I think just how often do we see Protestants and Roman Catholics breaking bread? How often do we see Methodists and Presbyterian share a meal with evangelicals and charismatics or whatever, right? Christian Democrats and Christian Republicans, as if there is such a thing, right? How are Christians doing at this? And I got to be honest, I'm part of the problem. I, I am. I've got, I've got my own pride. I've got my own... I, I think I'm too smarter than I really am sometimes. And so I look at other Christians who believe and say and do certain things that I'm like, ugh, not again. It's not what we're called to be, right? And, and what I think, the more I prayed about this, when I look out over this patio and I see our church, the more I prayed about it this week, I became increasingly convinced that there is something in our calling as a church in this passage. There is something here that is, is what God wants for us. And, and I, I hear, I, I've heard, and, and maybe you've heard this too, a lot of people say, hey, God's up to something new in heritage. What is that? What is the new? What is the new thing that God is doing? Could it have anything to do with being united and being one body, one so one as if God and the Father and the Holy Spirit, how they are one, we can be one, right? That, that I think is my heart for our church. And when I came here, if, if, if I'm honest, like one of the perceptions that I've seen is that many of us are, are we're kind of two churches in one. I think for some of us, we come from a very uh, Calvary Chapel-like evangelical background and, and sometimes we lean in that direction. And then some of us come from more of a, a charismatic, uh, um, you know, vineyard, uh, go after the Holy Spirit, gifts, miracles. And, and we lean this way. You know, and sometimes I think we just bounce back and forth. But I, and I don't think either one of those are bad. I, don't think, I think it's totally natural for us to have tendencies from what, how, we were, how, how we were raised, what feels comfortable to us. I mean, that's okay. But if we could be one, I mean, if we could just strengthen each other in that, how strong would we be? How beautiful of a thing would that be? Right? I mean, how many of you guys uh, married someone who thinks and acts exactly how you do? Just me? <laughs> Just kidding. 
No. Right? What, what did you find attractive in, in the person that you married? There is something that you probably see in that person that you need or you want and you're not complete without. And so I, I, I think the same goes for the strength of a marriage. Uh, the strongest marriages are people who realize, hey, you're good at this and I'm good at this, but together we're great. And I just wonder what that would look like if heritage became that. If we embrace the strengths of every single one of us, if we saw that, hey, you know what, man, the certain flavor of Christianity and stream that you float in is what I need. And we become one. And I think that that can be extremely powerful for this, to have a power of a family, a power of a family that is one. How do we get there? How do we get there? This is not easy, okay? I don't think we're gonna get there just next week. And I think it's gonna be a journey. But I think it starts by just saying, hey, I'm willing to go on that journey and taking a step. But it's gonna be humble servanthood. It's, it's our leaders, it's the Ricks, it's the Georges, it's the Peters, it's me, it's Gary. It's us modeling what servanthood looks like to start with. But we need to embrace each other. I mean, what does foot washing deal with? It deals with some muck and some scum and some, some dirt. We're gonna deal with that. And we're gonna need to be patient. We're gonna need to be listeners. We're gonna need to, we're gonna need to embrace each other's glory. And we're gonna need to forgive and love and, and be patient. I mean, how many times are we gonna have to forgive each other? I mean, what did Scott say just to me before? If, you're, if you haven't, yeah. Right? I will hurt you. I will. Scott's going to hurt you. We're all going to hurt you. We're all going to hurt each other. But what do we do with that? Like, just know that that's coming. Are we willing to be one? Are we willing to, uh, yeah, to pursue complete unity? Complete unity. So what does John 17 teach us? This beautiful chapter of Jesus's. It describes what eternal life is, which is to know intimately who God is, and, and to know Jesus, right? My, my hope is that you begin that journey where you intimately know who God is. And what else does John 17 teach us? It teaches Jesus' heart for us to see his glory, that he showered us with glory, that each one of you have value, and that we would become holy, that we'd be set apart, that we'd look different in the way we treat our neighbors, the way we treat our coworkers, the way we drive, the way we spend money. Every, it permeates every step of our lives, right? And through that holiness that we would reach complete unity, complete unity. We would be one, one church, not multiple churches within. And when that happens, when that happens, the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me, right? God's love will be so on display that I think people will say, I want that. I want, I want to be a part of that, all right? So I'm going to invite the worship team back up and we're going to spend some time worshiping. And uh, our prayer team will also be available. There'll be some people right here. There'll be some people in the back, My hope as we worship is that you will experience 
God's glory. That the presence of God will fill this space. And, and I pray that God just moves in your heart as to what he wants you to be set apart at. And, and I think one of the reasons that we sing, one of the reasons that we have a beat is that we all lift our voices as one, right? We sing with one voice to one God. And that's what we get a chance to do every time we worship. We're being united through our song, through our worship, through our praise, and through our love. So let your glory shine, right? As we assess the value of God and give him glory. Amen? Let me pray for us, and then we're going to worship for a little while, and then I'll come back, and I'll, and I'll give a final blessing. Lord God, I just want to say thank you for giving us a glimpse into your heart today. Um, your, your word is so precious, and we thank you for the Bible. God, I, I can't fathom how valuable we are to you and I can't fathom how valuable you are but somehow we're participating in that and we just thank you for it. God, would you continue to set us apart? Would you sanctify us? Would you be gentle with us? And God, would you make us one as we worship and praise you? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you tune in next week. For more information, go to heritagesc.org.